the fall is just such a busy time. Not that every other season isn't becoming very busy, but uh, just a lot of things going on. And so, as I said, my, I don't know if anybody, I don't think anybody reads my newsletter article actually, but uh, I write it. it, it it's, it's good medicine for me. Uh, but I just said, hey, you know, if you're here in town, be here in church. Uh, and and I, I say that not because I, I said I like to preach to a full house, that's for sure. It's always more exciting when there's more people here. Uh, but also that's because you being here is more than just coming to listen to me preach. Okay, When the, when the church gathers, um, and, and if you think about it, we don't have a lot of opportunities during the week to all see each other. This is one of those times of the week where you might see someone you don't see any other time. But it gives you an opportunity and me an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity to minister to others, to encourage others, to have conversations and talk with others. Some people say some of the most important Times in a church service are the 10 minutes before and the 10 minutes after where people are visiting and talking and encouraging one another. So being here is extremely important uh, because we all are part of a body and we all have a part to play. This is not a club, it's an organism. And, and for an organism, if you think about any organism you know from a, a single-celled organism to a dog, to a squirrel, or a cow, or a, what, a person, whatever, that if, if, if you're missing a part, you're not functioning correctly, all right? And so we would say every member of this church is a vital member, and so we want to be here. Now, understand, people get sick. We've got a lot of sickness going around. People are traveling and, and things like that, but uh, it's important to make a commitment. So at our house... You know, there's a question that's never asked at our house. You know what question that is? Is Daddy awesome? Because they already know he is. No, oh no. I'm just, I'm being stupid there. They wouldn't even think to ask that question. They know the answer is no. But, uh, but yeah, we never ask the question. We never ask, are we going to church tomorrow? Okay, because we already know we're going to church tomorrow. You don't have to ask that question. So, you know, uh, you could say... Uh, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision, maybe for a while. You, you, you just say, hey, we're just get your clothes ready and all that. But I always uh, think of uh, the story that we told at, at Don Berry's, uh, Kay Berry's funeral uh, about Don is that uh, one thing Don's kids remembered was that every Saturday night at a certain time, you all know this story that, that we're in his class, but every Saturday night, at a certain time of night, Don would go into the kids' closets and he would grab their shoes and he would polish them and he would set them out by the door and you know, that just was a reinforcement in their mind that, hey, we know where we're going tomorrow and Daddy's shining our shoes for church. And so that's the kind of homes we want to live in where we, where we just know, hey, we're going to go be with God's people tomorrow. It's not about the Chad show it's not about my ego uh, as much as it, uh, it, I'm tempted to feel that way at times possibly, but we understand our commitment is to one another. Our commitment is to the Lord. And so one of the ways that we show him in, in the discipline is that we're here. So I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're like, I'm glad I showed up on the day when he talked about being here. But uh, I could say this, I should probably say it four weeks in a row. When I count up, if everybody who's active all showed up on the same day, you know what we'd have to do? We'd have to put chairs in the choir loft to make people sit there because we wouldn't have enough seat, we wouldn't have enough room in the, in the pews. So that just shows you we've, we've, we've gone. Um, after COVID, we have not lost necessarily 
attenders, we've just lost consistency in attendance. And that, that's one thing that studies are showing is that uh, people attend less than they did. So the average church member, the average church member used to attend two Sundays a month. And now that's down to like 1.4 or something like that, you know. Um, so we want to we reverse that trend, don't we? We want to be, be here and be faithful. And I don't know about you, but every time I miss church, I feel it. Do you all feel that way? You, you just, something's missing for the rest of the week whenever I wasn't able to see you and be with you and worship with you uh, because we're a family. And where, we're, where we need to work on that, we need to work on it, don't we? Where we need to fellowship more. And You know, Ronnie and I, we tried this week to give us a great fellowship opportunity to go to Prestonwood. And we got on that website, and it broke down, and then everything sold out. So we couldn't get tickets to the show we were going to. But maybe we can find something to do uh, together. Uh, And I know we're going to have a great Christmas meal. Uh, Janice, Thanksgiving or Christmas? We're we're having a Christmas meal together, right, after church in December, one of the Sundays after church in December. The church is going to provide the meat. You bring a side or a dessert, and we'll get that organized of who needs to bring what. We're going to have a tremendous fellowship, so that's going to be a nice, a nice time for us to get together. But we want to grow in those bonds. Another way you grow in those bonds, you come to Sunday school. Another way you grow in those bonds, you ask questions after church. Really good questions like, how's it going? <laughs> How was your week? You know, those are good questions. How can I pray for you? What did you find helpful about that sermon? Those are the kind of questions that we use to encourage one another and spur one another on. Well, I want to recognize another milestone. Uh, she's not here today because the doctors have advised her to not go to places where she might pick up a sickness. But we had a church member this week, Catherine Ashley, turned 101 years old. And isn't that amazing? And uh, Friday morning, Rodney called Jan and said, they're having a parade for Catherine. And I guess they had it in front of her house, Rodney. I, I never did quite... Uh, so she sat in the yard, and then they had a parade go by by her house with um, fire trucks, things like that, and people drove by and honked and all those sorts of things. So I was able to uh, call her later in the day, and I said, well, I didn't know that they were having a parade, or I would have come down and, and uh, been in your parade. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, that was the most fun I've ever had. She said, I saw the cars, I saw the fire trucks. She said, there were people I didn't even know who were in that parade. And she, then she said, she said to me, she said, Chad, I just don't know if I'm ever going to get over that. <laughs> and I thought, what a, what, a sweet, what a sweet thing to say. And I thought that was also interesting because I was, I've been sitting here wrestling all week with this sermon, which is also about a parade. I was writing that sermon on Friday, a sermon about a parade or a procession that we talk about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we're going to talk about uh, processions today, processions or a parade. So I want to talk actually about multiple parades. Now the first parade I want to talk to you about is the procession of thought, a a parade of thoughts. Now, I've talked to enough people in my life to know that I'm not the only one who does this, but sometimes I get myself worked up. Do you all ever do that? I get myself worked up. I get myself paranoid. I become discouraged. I become worried. And when that happens, there's a procession of thoughts. What if this happens? And then after that happens, what if this happens? And what if this person thinks about me this way? And what if this person turns on me? 
What if I let these people down that I'm trying to please so hard? What if I started this and I'm not able to finish it? Now, I've thought about that a lot as Bill was talking about my doctoral project. It's one of the, this probably the only degree I've ever tried to get. Maybe, maybe I felt this way. I probably felt this way during law school where at some points I thought, am I going to be able to do this? And it's it just very difficult to, to achieve the, all, to get all the work done and to feel, you just feel like you're not smart enough sometimes to do things like this. So then that brings up another thought. What if I fail? What will people think of me if I fail? And what if I make a mistake or I do something I regret? And as much as I hate it, that parade just seems to, the band strikes up and that parade just goes through my mind. Does that ever happen to y'all? And I start to think about all the worst things that can happen and as that parade is strutting its stuff, sometimes it's a circumstance in my life, one thing goes wrong, Another thing goes wrong. Maybe it's not internal. Maybe it's external. And then here comes another parade. And it just can seem like it goes that way. We all get that way. And so in our text this morning, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, our verses will be 12 through 17. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, if you have them, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It's on the screen. So Paul, if you can remember where we are in this letter, possibly this is his third or fourth letter to the Corinthians, he's explaining his actions and defending his leadership. Uh, there are people in the church that have been very cruel and critical of him. And so he takes a, a minute to talk about some of his personal difficulties in the ministry. And I, you know... I'll, I, I've not. I've always kind of. Um, I've never really liked sermons that were sermons where preachers talk about how hard it is to be a pastor. I don't like those kind of sermons. When I, I've, I would say I've, I've been not a pastor more than I've been a pastor, and I've thought, well, why are you getting up here and talking about what it's what it's like to be a pastor? Because none of the people listening are pastors. Uh, very few are. But uh, really, any of us that are leading will experience these kind of difficulties. You might say, well, where, where, what am I leading? Well, at the very minimum, you're leading yourself. We call that self-control. So we've all got at least one person we're leading, don't we? And then we've got families that we lead. Perhaps you lead at work. Perhaps you lead a class at church. We're all leading people one way or another, and hopefully we're leading people to Christ. And as we seek to minister and minister together, we will have difficulties in our ministry. So this is applicable to us. We also want to learn Paul's heart here because Paul in this letter of 2 Corinthians in different places describes some of the things that he went through. Later on in the letter, in chapter 11, he says that he was imprisoned. Now this is all for Christ. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. Five times he received thir uh, 39 lashes. They called that the 40 lashes minus one. The, the, they would whip you 39 times because they thought if they beat you that 40th time that you would die. So he five times received the 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys. Dangers from rivers. Robbers. His own people. Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in wilderness. Danger at sea. 
And then he gets to the stuff that really hurts, like dangers from false brothers. Toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, often without food, often cold and exposed. He says, and apart from all those other things, Paul said daily, this is in chapter 11, he says daily, okay, daily, every single day, this was something on his heart, daily the pressure on me, he said, from my anxiety for all the churches. That's what he said. That the thing on my heart when I wake up every single day is all these churches I've started in all these different places, how they're doing. Knowing that they're under attack from false teachers. Knowing that many of them turn and go apostate and walk away from the faith. And we know that in this letter he's mentioning that because he has great anxiety about the Corinthian church. And then we see also in our passage today, he's not just talking about the trouble in his spirit, but he's talking about the feeling that he has that he's not even adequate or sufficient to do the work. Now, I certainly feel that way as a pastor. I'll talk about that in a minute. Who am I to be up here doing this? But we can all feel that way, right? We can all feel like my spirit is troubled. I don't know what to do. And then when I start to think about the fact that Jesus has called me to be a part of his ministry, to be a part of his church, we say, who is even sufficient to do this work? So look there at verse 12. I want to make two points today. First point is turmoil. Second point is triumph. First point is turmoil. Second point is triumph. Let's look at the turmoil first. Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them. We're assuming that's a church that he founded there. Even though his spirit was troubled and he wasn't at rest, we think on this journey, most likely, he founded a church there because he says he took leave of them. We think that's referring to believers that he had witnessed to there in Troas. He took leave of them and went to Macedonia. And then later on, we pick up in chapter 7, he continues to talk about his journey into Macedonia. He says, and when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. And we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside and fears within. Paul's talking about this time in his life where there was great turmoil. And what was causing him this turmoil? What was causing this anxiety? He's telling the Corinthians... I just didn't know what was going on with our relationship. I, was try I had no rest because I didn't know what was going on with our relationship. Do you ever get uh, preoccupied like that? So you, you've got all these things to do. You know you've been given all these tasks to do during a particular day, but there's something that's just not right. Maybe it's, maybe it's an argument you've had with your spouse. Maybe you're crossways with one of your kids or a friend or whatever it could be. And, and someone is talking to you about something very important and God's given you this conversation and you're trying to listen and you're trying to focus and you're trying to zone in, but you can't really give it more than about 10% of your brain because your heart's worried about something else. Have you been there? Maybe it's your relationship with the Lord. Whatever it is. But we know what it's like to not have that rest. And for him, he was saying, I didn't know, guys, what was going on with us. I'd sent Titus with a letter to you. So Paul wrote this letter and said, Titus, will you take it to him? I'm, a, I'm, afraid if, I'm afraid to go talk to him myself. I'm afraid that if I go, it's going to be worse than the last visit. Titus, will you take this letter to him and see how they respond to it? 
And so he takes that letter, which we think uh, is probably 1 Corinthians, takes that letter to him, or a painful letter, we don't know for sure. He takes, Titus takes a letter, and Paul's wondering, will those who are against me repent? Will those who are in immoral and... and, and uh, uh, adulterous relationships and even incestuous relationships, will they repent? Will they stop being a people that is so divided into different factions in the church? He's got all these questions about what's going to happen. And he's mentioning it here. Harassed, conflicted, fearing, spirit not at rest. And then as I was listening to a preacher last night, talking about her yesterday afternoon, he said, then something happens in the white space between verses 13 and 14, because look at what verse 14 says. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm in Troas, I can't pay attention, so I'm heading to Macedonia. And then he, he says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always, underline always, leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. I, I have been in conversations like this. I love conversations with believers like this. We're, we're really quick to throw pity parties, aren't we? Like, man, you, you hang out with me, you see how fast I can throw a pity party. I can feel like everything, I feel like the sky is falling, it doesn't take me long. But then we get with another believer and they go, wait a minute, wait a minute, but thanks be to God. Wait a minute, we're, we're, we're feeling, yeah, hang out, uh, uh, our page is pointing at Verma. <laughs> but thanks be to God, who in Christ, y'all need to calm down over there, by the way. Y'all are drawing too much attention to you. That's like a rowdy pew right there. Becky, keep them under control. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. When I feel like I'm losing, I'm in the winning parade. I'm in the parade that's celebrating the triumph of Christ. And through me, God is using me to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, the gospel, everywhere He goes. So we go from turmoil and then just very quickly to triumph. And when our minds, when that parade of horribles starts up, we need to remember we're, we're marching in the parade of triumph. What is this triumphal procession that Paul is referring to here? Uh, what is this parade that he's mentioning? If you don't know some of the background, this passage won't mean as much to you. The Romans would celebrate every now and then a parade that they called a triumph. A triumph. Let me read to you what one historian said about the triumphs. In a triumph, a victorious general would be marched and would march his army through the streets of Rome to the capital. And here's what the parade consisted of. First, in a triumph, came the state officials and the senate. Then came the trumpeters. Then were carried the spoils taken from the conquered land. And sometimes they would carry uh, parts of ships. Sometimes they would carry weapons. 
And if they had gone and conquered a city, they would make a small model of the city and they would parade that through the town. So they would uh, parade the conquered ships, maybe a small model of one of the ships or the citadels that they had conquered. Then, following the models and the, the spoils of war, they would uh, parade a white bull that would be sacrificed after the parade. Then they had the captive princes, leaders and generals of the opposing army in chains, and they were being uh, walked along the parade, beaten severely with rods during the entire parade, and at the end of the parade, they would be slaughtered. Then came the musicians with their lyres, and the priests would follow them, swinging censers with sweet-smelling incense burning in them. And then came the general himself riding in a chariot pulled by four horses, his face painted red in honor of the god of uh, Jupiter, and then he would carry an ivory scepter in his hand. And he would parade through the streets of Rome, and, the, and then behind him was his army. And as they went through the city, they would yell, Triumph! 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 And the people would gather and watch this spectacle that they might see only once in a lifetime. And the streets were decorated with garland and flowers, and the people were celebrating this tremendous day. The reason it was such a rare event is because the victory had to be so decisive. It could not have been a, a, a place that was only partially conquered by this general. The defeat had to have been so uh, effective that you could even bring the army home. There was a requirement that, it, on, that in at least one battle in this campaign that the general's army had to slaughter 5,000 people in one day. So it wouldn't just be a defeat, but it would be a slaughter. It couldn't be a town that was already captured. It could not be a civil war uh, situation. It had to be a brand new conquest. And so when the general met all of those qualifications, the triumph parade was given. And Paul says, knowing that, he says, my spirit was troubled. I went to go find Titus. I needed to find Titus. I needed God to lead me to Titus because I needed to know what was going on with you guys. And then he says, and thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us. He led him to Titus. And, he, and Christ always leads us in a victory parade, a triumphal procession. And I struggle with this sermon trying to figure out what is Paul in this. He's saying, when things look bad, when my motives in ministry are being questioned, when I've lost heart, maybe we could say, when I feel, when I feel least triumphant, Thanks be to God because He's winning. Thanks be to God because of His will that will always bring Him glory. It's being accomplished even in my feeble weakness. A weak vessel like me that's committed to Him. So I thought, well, what is Paul saying? And I, I was sharing with Dan uh, before church. I, I tried to write this sermon like three different times. I finally finished it this morning just sitting there typing. I was sitting on the edge of the bathtub typing it. I always get the best inspiration, like, oh, I need to change everything in my sermon at like 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings. But I struggle with this. What is Paul? Is Paul 
Is he saying that he's like one of the captives that's being beaten with the rods? Because we know that part of being in Christ means we lay down our lives. Is he saying that he's going to be a prisoner like one of these captive princes who would possibly be enslaved for the rest of their life in Rome? Or is he saying, I'm like one of these soldiers following the general in the parade? Or, he kind of does say it here, is Paul saying he's like the incense that's, that's being uh, wafted out of those censers as the priests follow? And so here was my way it kind of all came together for me this morning. And maybe he's all three. You know, Paul talks in the Bible about being a bondservant for Christ, being a slave for Christ. He talks about being a prisoner of the Lord. That it's no longer his life, but he lives for Christ. And he also uses the image of a soldier. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, put on the armor of God. And then, of course, here, talking about us being a sweet-smelling aroma. And so there are many times I think we need to stop and remember what our life is about. Paul says here that our life is always being led by Christ as though in a triumphal parade. And we need to stop and remember what this parade is about. It's about the Lord and not us. It's about the way that that general was getting glory out of his army. He was getting glory out of those captives. It was all about the general that day. And we need to remember that we're in this parade and wherever we are in the parade and whatever we're doing in the parade, God is using us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Look how He expands on that idea in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, look at verse 16a, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Interesting thing about that parade, the smell of the parade. The historians say the Romans would say it smells like victory. It smells like victory. Paul says here, but to some people, that parade smelled like death. To those who have eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you've put your faith and hope and trust and Christ has your heart, when you hear the gospel, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma. But for those of you who are here and you're lost in your trespasses and sins and you're on your way to hell, it's not a sweet-smelling aroma. It's a scent of death. Think forever about perhaps a slave who was conquered and brought from a foreign land. He was ripped away from his home and his family. Many of his friends were probably killed in great battles. And here he found himself being paraded through the streets of Rome, eventually to become a slave. And whereas that Roman citizen would smell that incense, he would say, oh, yes. When he would smell that, 
he would remember that day. Maybe when he would smell that incense again, it would remind him of that day. And he would react to it. Isn't it interesting how uh, certain smells uh, can bring up a memory in your mind? Uh, and, and I actually looked this up. Like, why is it that we have such a strong reaction? Uh, you know, like if you, if you smell a, a, gra- a yard that's just been cut, and it can remind you of some memory you have as a child. Uh, maybe it's, uh, when I smell that uh, grass, fresh-cut grass like up at the school, it reminds me of my elementary days. Or maybe if, uh, if I smell a gum wrapper, you know, from like a, pep- a spearmint gum, if I smell a gum wrapper, it immediately reminds me of my grandmother's purse, right? Because her purse always smelled like gum, you know? And uh, just things like that. We have very strong reactions to the sense uh, because they say in, in where you're all factory, I think that's the way you say that, wherever that's processed in your brain, they think that part of your brain might actually store memories. And so it bypasses like your thalamus and your hippocampus and goes straight to the, the smell receptors, and uh, that that is just like a, that's why we have such a powerful reaction sometimes whenever we smell something that evokes a memory. And so we can imagine that, how bitter that incense would have smelled to the one who had become a slave. We react strongly to certain aromas. That's a protection to us. Imagine if you couldn't smell rotten milk or smoke or noxious fumes, or pleasing food. You know, remember COVID, one of the things COVID did is it took away people's ability, the early strains, to, to taste and smell. And that was very distressing to people because they said, well, I, you know, I was using chemicals and I didn't smell them, so I didn't realize how strong they were, you know, whatever it could have been. But Paul's talking here about a reaction to this aroma that we represent, this fragrance that we will call the gospel. To some, it smells like victory. To others, death. And you will notice that if you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ into this world. I notice it as a pastor. One place it's very clear is in places like a funeral home or a hospital room. Places where pastors show up and rub elbows with people and visit with people. And there's a mixed crowd there. You might have people that are at a funeral that never set foot into a church at any other time than perhaps the funeral home uh, chapel or maybe to come to a church for a funeral. And you can see the different reactions. I notice it a lot standing at the graveside doing the uh, interment ceremony where we're standing there and I can see people's faces up close. And when I'm reading about the hope that we have in Christ, how it comforts some and causes others to bristle. What does the preacher at those ceremonies represent? And it's interesting that in people's minds that you can have people that don't go to church, they have no relationship with the Lord, or maybe they're from out of town and they, they, they have a connection to Albany, they're going to come back here and they say, we want a preacher. We need a Baptist preacher, and I show up for that. And, it's, and I always think it's interesting that, that there's still this sort of tradition, uh, which I understand that the tradition is becoming less pervasive, but there's still a tradition that you, you want to have a preacher oversee your funeral. But why would you want to have a preacher oversee the funeral that's talking about stuff you don't even believe? That always amazes me. But you know what? Anytime somebody come, asks me to come preach the gospel, I'm going to do it. 
I think those are fine times to come and witness to people and to pray and to be, and to be sensitive to the situation. But, but you know what? The, the, beautiful, the beautiful funerals are the ones where it's a family and they all love the Lord. And, and that is when we can really worship and celebrate a home going together. And in those other types of situations, it is more difficult, more difficult to know what to say, realizing that as a preacher, to some people I represent comfort, to others something you don't believe or something you might even hate. That's how ministry is, isn't it? That's what we've been called to do. We've been called to be. And then look at the second part of verse 16 as we are about to wrap it up. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be in the parade like this? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. As I mentioned, I've always been a little bit I don't like the sermons where the preacher talks about how hard it is to be a preacher. Here's why. Because I haven't always been a preacher. I was a teacher. And I was a lawyer. And been a preacher. I've been a radio disc jockey. I've done a lot of weird things. And I happen to think of being a preacher as like, it's a charmed life. Like it's the great, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a calling. But like imagine this. The church says, hey, we're going to set you apart. And we want your job to be to study the Bible and to pray and be spiritual. That's awesome. You know? Is, it, is there a lot of difficulty? Sure. But it was really hard to be a lawyer, too. I mean, everybody's got hard jobs. Whatever you're doing, you're doing something difficult. Uh, maybe you're doing something perhaps as a job. Maybe you feel like it's calling. I don't know. But everybody I know has, has, has a hard task in life. doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. Preachers don't have like this unbelievable uh, burden, you know, that nobody else can even understand the way they act like it sometimes. I never appreciated that because, again, I worked a regular job and I was like, oh man, if you think being a preacher is hard, you should try being a lawyer. But the hard part of the, being a preacher, in my opinion, is wrestling uh, with the feeling like you're not good enough to have the job. I mean, it's a different kind of, of, of difficulty there. Um, and it's probably terrible to be married to me for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons would be, I think, is how Melissa has to sit in the front seat next to me in the car everywhere we go and hear me do all my self-questioning and soul-searching and agonize about all the stupid things that I say and all the stupid things that I do and the way I feel about things. I mean, there's times where people have actually said to me, you know, either online or out loud, wait a minute. You're supposed to be a man of God. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, I, my reaction when they say that, like, you're a terrible preacher, or you're a terrible pastor, whatever they would say. My reaction to that is, oh my gosh, I know. Uh, you don't even know the half of how bad I am. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm acutely aware of my shortcomings and my hypocrisy and my... Um, you know, wanting to be different. I say that to myself all the time. You're, you're supposed to be a man of God. You know you're going to be judged more harshly. And, you know, I feel verse 16 really strongly. I, I, I told Melissa this morning, I said, I really needed this sermon. It's good for me to read that the Apostle Paul felt like he wasn't good enough too. Uh, who's adequate for this? Who's sufficient for this? When that sermon is a stinker, when I'm fearful of you, 
I, mean, I think pastors, we spend more time being afraid of our people than we do being afraid of the devil. Um, when we get discouraged, and it's not because of usually anything other than just being aware of my own sinful heart and being disgusted with it and wanting you to have the best pastor you can have and knowing that I'm standing in the way of that. But when everything feels like it's hanging by a thread and I want to quit, you know what I need to say? Thanks be to God. He's always leading us in a triumphal procession. I'm in this. Here's the application. I'm in this and you're in this. We're in this together because God has opened the door. I'm in this and, and you're in this because we were in a faraway land and like John said, we were captured by the king and we were brought into his city. I'm in this and you're in this because we've been drafted into the Lord's army. And I don't know where this parade is headed. I don't know what all the places it's going to wind around and all this. I don't know the route, I should say. But I, knew, I do know it's going to the city. It's going to the capital. It's going to where I can be uh, there around the throne of Jesus Christ. And so because I know that, I need to keep trusting the general. And I'm thankful for new more mercies every morning. I'm thankful that he sympathizes with my weakness and if you're there with me and you're feeling that way, the good news is that there's hope. If you want to be in this parade, you just put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're in this parade, in the moments when you feel defeated, you have to remind yourself, this life is not a parade of defeat for me. This is a parade of victory because I'm with the general. And in verse 17, we acknowledge this is hard work. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard for us to minister God's Word out there. Because to a lot of people, maybe even to most people, I don't know, it doesn't smell good. But Paul says we're not out here peddling God's Word to other people. We're not watering this down. We're not trying to sell snake oil. We're not changing the formula to make it more acceptable so people will submit to Christ. We're not, we're not trying to say, hey, these people won't accept the gospel. What's, what have people done all these years? Well, let's just change the gospel. Let's make it easier. Paul said, we're not doing that. We're not peddling this. We're not trying to sell it. You believe it or you don't. And I think he says there at the end of verse 16, we know we're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. You know you're not perfect. But you know what we need to be? We need to be sincere. We're not adequate, but we are called and commissioned. And sometimes it's the call that's the thing that keeps you going. And we're speaking Christ before God, and it says there that we're doing it in the sight of God. So we know God's with us. He can see us. He's close to us. He guides us. He directs us. He opens up the doors. He leads us in the parade. He directs us, and then whenever we're out of line, when we step out of the parade, He redirects us. Let's get back in here. But this is what we know and believe as we march through life and ministry. So I needed this passage, and you did too, I'm hoping. Because I know I'm not the only one in here that sometimes feels the turmoil and needs to be reminded of the triumph. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood atoning. And then I repented of my sins and won the victory. 
O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood.